One thing is really clear. Everybody needs an estate plan. If you haven't thought about your estate plan in a long time, if you're really rich, if you're not so rich, I highly encourage you to listen in. This could be well worth your time. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Lewis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic, and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. don't have to be rich to need an estate plan. One of the things I learned talking to Jim Cunningham, a savvy estate planning attorney who has a book by the name of Savvy Estate Planning. We went over a lot of different topics talking about people who don't have a lot of money all the way to people who are very rich. And one thing is really clear. Everybody needs an estate plan. If you haven't thought about your estate plan in a long time, if you're really rich, if you're not so rich, I highly encourage you to listen in this could be well worth your time. I hope you enjoy this podcast. What is the biggest misconception that people have about estate planning? I think probably the biggest misconception is my stuff's really simple. Okay. I mean, I think that's probably because we're dealing with humans and humans are wonderful most of the time. And they're very complex creatures and every family has its weird stuff going on. Not all families are perfect. Not that I'm saying that if you're listening to this, that there's something wrong with you, but think about your own family. So I think really the biggest misconception is just thinking, well, mine's really simple and this can just be done. And sort of the next level is like do it yourself because I think people really don't even know how to find a lawyer. That's why I wrote Savvy Estate Planning, what you need to know before you hire the right lawyer, which is all the stuff you need to know or think about before you even walk into the attorney's office because your time with a lawyer is very expensive, quite frankly. And a lot of this is learning. It's new stuff for a lot of people. So it's a lot of new terms. It's triggering parts of your brain that may never have been triggered. You know, you're not thinking about your own mortality. You're not thinking about your kids. You're not thinking about your legacy, whatever legacy means. It can be a monetary, it can be values. It can be a lot of different things, but I think people really, before they go to the lawyer, they're really not adequately prepared. And that was kind of the point of the book is to get you thinking about all this stuff and not really tell you how to do it. And we have one, one review on, on Amazon that says, well, it doesn't tell you how to do your estate plan. Well, yeah, that's what the lawyer's for. <laughs> yeah. Unless you have a lot of time on your hands and want to go back to law school and do all that. And even then, and, and the years of experience that it takes to actually practically know what to do, you don't do it yourself. Don't try this at home. No, 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 not DIY. Yeah. And well, and the more complex your situation is, the more you don't want to do it at home. <laughs> yeah. So. And, yeah. It's not even money though, too. I think a lot of people focus a lot on the money aspect because I think it's easy. It's easy to look at a financial statement and say, oh, that's that person's net worth. That's that number because everyone can agree that number means the same thing. But when you get into this sort of very subjective aspect of estate planning, that's where it gets tough. And that's why you need an expert. This is not just for any attorney, by the way. And this is something, one of the themes in our book is this is the purview of experts. So not every lawyer should be doing estate planning. In fact, less than 7% of lawyers practice estate planning regularly. So it, it's a very small segment of the legal practice. Tell me a little bit about your general approach about how you deal with the family dynamic. How do you start off that conversation? 
So we follow a process and any lawyer who knows what they're doing. So if you're listening to this, like, yeah, I got to find a lawyer and, and how do I know to, to pick one? Lawyers that don't follow a process. I'm a pilot and you have a checklist flying a plane because if you don't have a checklist, your mortality rate is significantly higher. So it's good to have a checklist. It is good mm -hmm. for lawyers to have a process and not wing it. So part of the process sure. is a real comprehensive knowledge of not only the financial picture, so we need to see everything, but also the family situation. So we ask clients to fill out, and most lawyers do this, like an eight page questionnaire. A lot of it's about sure. your family, some it's about finance. And one of the things I always ask people, which is a weird question to ask, we ask, who are your children? And then I ask them, are there any other children? Because about one in a hundred times or one in 50 times or one in 25 or whatever it is, it's not common, it's not frequent, but it does happen. People say, oh, I didn't list Johnny because I don't want him to get anything. Well, tell me more. Why don't you want Johnny to get anything? Well, I don't want Johnny to get anything for whatever reason. And you actually have to list people that you don't want to inherit because if you don't list them, then they are what are called a pre-termitted or a forgotten heir, and then they actually get something. So if you mm -hmm. want to disinherit someone, you have to make it absolutely crystal clear, I don't want this person getting anything. But we really take a deep dive with our clients and we ask them, do you believe your children are responsible with money? Which is not necessarily mean they are or they aren't, but I'm asking the client, do you believe your children are responsible with money? And then certainly for the wealthier clients, something I'm seeing is a shift in mindset. So a lot of people think this is mine. And when I die, the kids get it. But a lot of people, I'm in California, it's very expensive to buy a house in California. A lot of people actually want to see their grandchildren. And so they're having to help their kids buy a house. They're having to help their kids. You know, sometimes it's the flip. The kids are helping the parents. But we sit down and we talk about the family situation. We talk about the dynamics. We talk about attitudes towards wealth. The client's attitude is this your money, like you and maybe if you're married, you and your spouse, or do you, are you viewing this more as a family money? So I was on with a, a client yesterday who made a lot on crypto, a lot of zeros in there. And he wants to set up essentially a family bank for his family. And you can do that with a partnership structure so that you can use up this. To, right now, we have a $12 million exemption per person, right? So you can give someone 12 million. If you're married, it's 24 million. That is a lot of money. And if you've got the ability to do that, you can capitalize a partnership and kind of pass out partnership shares in a trust. So it's protected and a lot of layers of protection, but you can really share the wealth because I will tell you, once your basic needs are met, and many of the people who are watching this or listening to it, your basic needs are met. You're not going to outlive your money. Whether you have $100 million in your portfolio or $10 million, it's not going to change your life. Okay. It just isn't. These are the clients I deal with. Okay. Right, right. And these are people that put gas in their own car, they drive their own car, they go to the store, they buy groceries, and they just happen to be wealthy, which is kind of, I don't know if it's just a California thing or a Northern California thing, but I think if you don't have a lot of money, you think, oh, all these people do all this stuff for you. Well, actually people with a hundred million dollars, they do go to the store and they buy their own groceries. So, well, I can tell you firsthand, I have <laughs> no people have clients who have 10 million plus who don't feel rich oh, God, in yeah. California because the cost in California is so exorbitant for many different things. And yeah, it's a different psychology. And I do think the vast majority of Americans don't relate to that. They don't relate to that because they don't see that as being kind of normal. Because if you look statistically, uh, what is it? Between 47 and 55% of all households do not pay federal income tax. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge amount of people that don't even pay federal income tax, right? And so it becomes something that I think people think estate planning is something that I don't need. So tell me... Who needs an estate plan? 
And what is actually the biggest definition of estate planning that you would put? put well, forward? I think it's, it's, first of all, estate planning is a writing. Okay. It's got to be written down. You can't just breathe life into it and it kind of exists. It, it's a writing for people who aren't used to dealing with paper because they grew up in a technology, you know, in the technological world, it's typically printed on a piece of paper that's eight and a half by 11. It's this very archaic, old school way of doing it, at least for the moment. And I think everyone needs an estate plan. Okay. Because number one, you're a human, you're alive, you're breathing. You may not always be alive. Well, you won't always be alive. You will pass away. You will have earthly possessions. You can't take it with you. We talked about that in the book. You can't take it with you. The Vikings tried it. The Egyptians tried it. No one succeeded with doing that. And then you also, many people have a period of time where they're not able to do for themselves. And that the legal term for that is incapacity. So if you have a stroke and you can't do for yourself, who's going to pay your bills? If you can't sign the checks, that's where a durable power of attorney at a minimum, I think at a minimum, people need three basic documents, a will that says, when I die, this is who gets my stuff, a durable power of attorney for property and a durable power of attorney for properties. It says, if and when I can't do for myself, Lewis, I'm going to name you as to do for me. Okay. You're, you're my agent under my durable power of attorney and an advanced healthcare directive. Now this is really important because of medical privacy, especially in the era of COVID if you go to the hospital. I don't know if you've been to a hospital or had someone go to the hospital during COVID. You can't go there. You can't, I mean, who would want to go there anyway, right? Cause it's full of sick people and germs, but the durable power of attorney for healthcare lets someone else make healthcare decisions for you. If you can't, those are the three basics will durable power of attorney for property durable power of attorney for healthcare, also known as advanced healthcare directive or medical directive. Beyond that, if you own a home and you live in a state like California or New York or Florida, you're going to want to have a living trust, right? In those states, some jurisdictions, trusts aren't as big of a deal, quite frankly. It's done a lot by will. I think Connecticut's one of those states where it, a lot of times it's, it, it's done by will. Mm -hmm. So a living trust is sort of that, if you think of it like the food pyramid, the bottom is why well, I don't know what's at the bottom of the food pyramid at the foundation of an estate plan is the living trust and your will and your durable power of attorney for property and healthcare. Beyond that, if you have wealth, if you have special situations, you know, if you have a loved one with special needs, somebody who maybe will never work in their entire life, they might be on SSI, which is supplemental security income. And there are a lot of Americans that are disabled. Some are on SSDI, which is social security disability income. Some are on SSI. And those people, you know, if you have wealth and you leave money without a structure around it, that will kick that loved one off of public assistance benefits. And so that's really important. A lot of our clients have children with disabilities and it's very important for them. It's not about the money so much, mm -hmm. but you're on typically in California, Medi-Cal or Medicaid. So your healthcare is covered. And then also you get, at least in California, of course, I'm... <laughs> Right. a whole host of social services. So there's a whole litany of government services out there to help people with disabilities. So mm -hmm. uh, it just depends on your situation. Again, if you're super wealthy, there's all kinds of tax saving strategies out there. It's mm -hmm. been said that the death tax is optional. In many ways, that's the case. Income taxes are partially optional. There's a lot of planning we do for clients to reduce their overall income tax bill. Yeah, that whole landscape is, in my opinion, iffy. For example, there's always some new fangled bill that is proposed. The most recent one would be being taxed based on the change in your net worth or being taxed or getting rid of the step up in basis, which would blow up many different estate planning situations for a lot of people. Yeah. So what is your feeling about the actual reality of that change? There being some dramatic change that would kind of change estate planning structure. Um, the I say the, probably the one that affects 
people the most would be the loss of adjusted cost basis. Now, what that means is, you know, if I own something for a dollar and it's worth $10, I paid a dollar for it and it's worth $10 and I die, my wife, at least in California, because it's community property state, my wife can sell that $10 thing and not pay capital gains on that $9 gain. This would be catastrophic, absolutely catastrophic to the creation of wealth. And there is so much inequality in our society. We're still brick by brick tearing down the institutional racism that I'm telling you as a lawyer, there is so much legacy garbage in there that we're having to go brick by brick and just deconstruct this. And it is not an easy process. And this is just the time when essentially all boats are rising, right? And hopefully we can lift the rest of the, the country or the vast majority of the people who are, who are in poverty out of poverty. This is catastrophic. So think about it. If all you do is inherit a house that is $200,000 and mom and dad paid 10,000 for it, that's $190,000 capital gain. You're gonna give up a big chunk to the government on that one. And that's just not right, it's not fair. Yeah, that affects the middle class, the yep. lower, it affects everybody. And the Democrats brought that forth. One of a few crazy ideas that I saw in the last, uh, anyway. So, but the thing that I'm thinking about is I'm looking at it from, I have an economics background in finance, I'm a chartered financial analyst. So I look at it from a global economic scale. Recently, I was looking at where we are with the inflation and with the budget deficit. We're at 12, look, we're at 12% budget deficits as a percentage of GDP, which we haven't seen since the 40s. But what's different between now and then is our budget deficit as, or our debt as a percentage of GDP is astronomical. It's 123% of GDP. Yeah. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do the math to figure out that we have to do some pretty dramatic things to change the printing and the monetizing of the deficit, the printing of money. So taxes is one thing that you can, one lever, right? But if half of the taxpayers in the households are not paying taxes now on the federal, you can only tax the rich so much. They're going to have to go further down the line into the middle class, right? And they're not going to be able to do it all with one lever. There's going to have to do it with multiple levers. They're going to have to give less to people who are rich in terms of benefits. They're going to have to raise taxes across the board to everybody. And right now, it seems like there's this thought that somehow we could just continue to tax the rich enough to make the books balance, if you will. And the math just doesn't work. What would you say to that? And, and the reason why I bring that up is because this clearly affects estate planning because we have to find money somewhere. What would you say to that? Well, it's strange because I think we're in completely uncharted waters. We're coming out of a pandemic I think it's hard for normal people to understand how the government can just print an unlimited amount of money. Okay, we're, we're a fiat currency. I think back to the gold rush in 1848. I happened to be in Sacramento, literally, I don't know, 10 blocks from Sutter's Fort where they went like, yeah, that's gold. They didn't find it in Sacramento. They found it up in the Sierra foothills. The amount of gold specie in circulation increased 20x. So that's the equivalent of printing a bunch of money. It actually kind of sparked the second industrial revolution in Europe. It really created a lot of wealth worldwide. I don't know if deficit spending, you know, we have this big demographic surge of millennials. The millennials will hit peak spending in 2029. And it may be that this surge of people working and creating wealth may absorb that money that's being printed or not. But I think the problem is when you have too many dollars chasing too few goods and services, that's where you get inflation. And I think that's what's happening because we've got this supply chain disruption. And now with China locking down, then you got the war in Ukraine, that's yeah. affecting oil. There are a lot of problems. But when you take a long view, that's where a lot of my clients have a lot of real estate. It doesn't matter how much money the government prints in a sense, because it's a tangible asset. 
I think it's going to hurt your savings. I mean, I look at the inflation rate now. What's the inflation rate? At 8%? Eight percent, eight and a half. The PPI is at eleven over eleven percent. Yeah, which, which leads the, it's the CPI. Yeah, but, that's nuts. I mean, and you're getting what on a bank account, and you can borrow right. money at five percent. This is just a weird time. Yeah, like, the Fed is way behind the curve. Uh, you said something about real estate. So in California, the percentage of net worth is obviously higher in real estate for people in California. And I think that there's a belief that somehow real estate is immune to these types of things. But if you study economics, you find that it's actually not completely Oh, no, immune. it's not immune. It's Certain assets are better than others. Right. Certainly, if we have a wealth tax based on that, how do you actually monetize that? Like, let's say we have a wealth tax and real estate prices go up on paper, where are you going to get the liquidity to pay for that? Yeah. So some of these, it doesn't make any sense. But getting back to a state plan, the reason why I bring this up only, the only reason I bring this up is because I think the largest change that's going to happen in estate planning is going to be due to these factors. Because we have to find money somewhere and it's going to affect your business dramatically in the next five years. Because what's happening right now is not sustainable. And so if we raise interest rates, the Fed just this morning just announced that they're going to raise interest rates quite a bit faster, which all of us who study it go, yeah, you have to. And, and even what you say you're going to do is still behind the acre. Right. So that will affect real estate valuations that will affect people's financing capabilities will affect the banking system. But longer term, taking that longer term view, where are the taxes going to come from? And I just think these changes are going to hit the estate planning first because that's the easy, low-hanging fruit, if you will. Yeah, tax dead people. And, so, yeah. And it's also going to affect the retirement plans because it's a big pot of money that is out there that in our business, we see it because we see the regulations that they're trying to push through. There's many little tiny ways that the government is trying to get into taxing the, and they actually have effectively started doing that by shortening distributions and other things. So what do you think would be the first thing that's going to be affected in the future? And I know usually CPAs and attorney don't like to look out in the future too much. They do have to look out in the future, but they also want to say, well, the rule is this right now. But if oh, you had to look have a crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen in the next five years? Well, I know what's going to happen. January 1 of 2026, the amount of money that the amount of wealth that you can leave or give is going to be cut in half. The tax-free amount that you can leave or give is right. going to be cut in half. It's going to go from 12 million to 6 million per person. And you think that will stay? You think that will, that the, the sunsetting, is, is it called oh, a sunset? Yeah, it's, a, it's sunset. Yeah. It's automatic. Yeah, it's automatic. So you yeah. don't think they're going to like change it again like they did? Didn't they do that one? Yeah, okay. I, they won't extend it. No, I don't think they will. And I don't think you're going to see a wealth tax, a federal wealth tax. States are free to impose a wealth tax. I mean, they do. They Property taxes, hello, right? That's a wealth tax. Correct. The federal government cannot impose a wealth tax without a constitutional amendment because there's nothing changing hands. So could they impose a federal property tax? I don't think so because the constitution reserves its 10th amendment that reserves to the states everything that the constitution doesn't mention and there's no wealth tax in there. So I'm not seeing that. That's kind of a non-starter. Okay. Uh, but I could see a tax on increased income taxes. And another thing too, to bear in mind is wages are going up. Now, this may just be a California thing, but we've had to increase wages in our law firm rapidly. Okay. No, it's across the board. Wage growth, I think that's positive for the economy. But what's going to happen is people are going to be paying more taxes, right? Because they're going to be earning more money and be pushed up into higher brackets. Now, granted, those brackets, they lag with inflation. But I think when you look at the government revenues, what was it at, at the end of September last year? I think it was $4.1 or something. That's a lot of money. Still, still not nearly enough. If you overlay a graph of wage growth year over year, 
going back from the Trump administration till now, and you look at overlay inflation rate, wages were growing faster than inflation during the Trump administration. I'm not a Trump fan, just so you know. Yeah. But I'm just saying what the facts are. And ever since we've had changes in energy policy and things like that, that is actually reversed. And now you have inflation growing much faster than the wage growth uh, rate. And you're also seeing much more inflation that's hurting everybody. I mean, I went to the grocery store the other day, or my wife told me it was like $14 a pound for a chicken. What? Yeah, $14 a pound for a certain type of chicken. Oh, is that because the Texas governor blocked? I read about this. I'm not in Texas, but that's just one example. (laughs) The inflation rate is hurting the, the who's really getting hurt. A lot of the policies that are supposed to help the middle class are actually hurting the middle class, actually, because inflation is confiscating their ability to spend or have real spending faster than the wage growth. So I think that is going to continue to cause unrest, which is going to affect estate planning. And I don't think that's going to reverse because of rising interest rates 100 basis points. Well, that is going to affect the money side of estate planning. But then there are still some fundamentals that we talked at the very beginning, which is if you become incapacitated, you have to have a mechanism to some to take care of you. Otherwise, you're going to court. And that's yes. a hassle. I mean, number one, it's public. A lot of people don't know this. All court proceedings are public unless they're a minor's something, right? Unless mm-hmm. you're a, a child. But the justice system is public. It's not something that's confidential. If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions, or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. When would I want to get a living trust? You would want to get a living trust before you die or become incapacitated. So um, <laughs> still living. Yeah, right. <laughs> like who would want it? Who would at want point, it? Yeah. At what point would you say that I should go that direction? You know, we get that question a lot because yeah. I don't have 12 million. I don't need to do all these shifting around of titling of assets yet, but I want my stuff to not go through probate and all that. Yeah. And I think if you have stuff, I would say, look at it. And it depends on the state you're in. It depends on the nature of your assets. If you own real property and you're in California, pretty much yes is the answer. Lawyers won't give you absolutes, but the answer is yes on that one. If you own a mobile home and you have $100,000 in the bank and you do not own the dirt under the mobile home, in California, a mobile home passes outside of the probate system. And if you have less than about 165000 or 166250 I think is a number, then you can distribute that bank account through an affidavit procedure, not a probate. So I would say that- like most people need one. I mean- yeah, most, on most people should be looking at it. You yeah, know, it should, not need, but it could help them. Yeah. And then I think the pe- question people ask is how much? I think people ask how much, not because they're cheap or they want to spend a lot or they don't want to spend a lot. They just don't know what other question to ask. I mean, that's kind of the bottom line. It's like, well, what, you need a whiz bang. Okay. How much is it? Like, that's all I know to ask. Right. And you're probably going to, I would say if you're not spending at least realistically 10 X, eight X of that attorney's hourly rate, you're not getting the attention that you need. So if someone's, if an attorney's charging 500 bucks an hour, you should be paying between three and seven for your estate plan. That's just kind of what we see. And if you're paying a thousand dollars, you're just getting a substandard product, at least in this California numbers. But these are pretty similar across the country. I'm in a nationwide group of lawyers and we talk, right? We go to conference, how much you charge, what's going on? What's your market like? And it's pretty consistent throughout the country. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, so a lot of people could benefit from doing that. Yeah. And they, they don't have to be rich to need one of these or to benefit from one of these. Right. Sometimes we just say, hey, could talk to an attorney and take a look at it. Yeah. I'm not recommending it, but maybe this would help you. I remember early in my career, people with not a, a whole lot of means, you know, like under the caps, they, but they would still would have benefited. Maybe something was outside of probate. They went through a long process and there was some problems with getting things titled correctly and all. And it just kind of solves a lot of that problem. Our experience has been even after you do all of that stuff, it's still a tough time. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm just thinking about a client whose husband just passed away. And even though they did everything right, it's still a lot. Yeah. These things don't, the legal term is settle, right? They don't work themselves out. They don't administer themselves. It's a human being who's a trustee and something else, just to be very clear, if you do not if you say, I don't, I've got 10 grand in the bank and I've got a bunch of credit card debt, you still need a will. Okay. Because if you don't have a will, your state, whatever state you live in, when you pass away, they have a will for you. Now you may not think about it, right? You may not think about this, but it's called intestacy or without a, a will, last will and testament, intestacy is a Latin word and property can be distributed, whatever it is. And you may not want it going that way. So this is really important. So I would just be to be very clear, whether it's a trust or a will. Now, by the way, if you have a living trust, you also have a will. It's called a pour over will. But you should have at least a will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that for the average person, that's sound advice. I find that to be a misconception for a lot of people who are, I want to kind of move up the net worth scale now. Yeah. What we see is the middle tier net worth type of person. They have some rental properties maybe some highly appreciated stock. They're earning 500,000 a year or more. They don't own a business, but they are an executive for a business and they might live in California. And they're now getting ready to kind of figure out what they need to do with their estate plan. They have a different situation, I think a little bit when they're dealing with real estate that are in different states and all that. What are the types of things that type of person in that situation should be looking at? Yeah, so let me just start with the really rich people. We see the wealthiest families oftentimes have assets with the lowest basis because they've been given from generation to generation. So if you're really wealthy and you say, man, this sucks to have a low cost basis on my assets, that's just the way it is. I would say the harder, the more challenging estate for us is like six to right now, six to 24 million. So 6 million if you're single and up and 24 million if you're married because that death tax exemption is gonna drop. So it, here is what we play with in community property states. Here's the interchange, Colorado's community property state. Basically all the states that used to be part of Mexico before the Mexican-American war are community property states plus Florida and Wisconsin. So here's the deal. One spouse dies, you get a full adjusted cost basis on everything. If you have real estate and it's rental, that asset is being depreciated. You don't have the option. Some of my clients say, well, we're not taking depreciation. Well, if it's a rental, the basis is going down. It's just how it goes. So what happens is these clients with long-term assets with very low cost bases, they may want to not gift those properties. They may want to hold them until one spouse dies, certainly in a community property state, because that solves the capital gains tax problem. The problem is now that may be after 2026, right? After 2025, when this death tax exemption drops. And this is why I'm saying this is hard for clients between six and, and 24. Now, there are some rather sophisticated estate planning tools where you can make a gift and then you can buy it back and you can move it in and out of trusts. You kind of have to time someone's death. And I will tell you, I do not like that part of estate. <laughs> no, seriously, because we have clients die. I was at a client's funeral last weekend and he died kind of young and it was just like... 400 people there. And it was just really sad. And I was talking to him the day before he died. 
and resistance mm. to death. So you have to time death on some of those. But for us, especially in California, you know, if you're in California, if you're in Florida, if you're in Illinois, Illinois, I got to tell you, if you're in Illinois, don't die in Illinois. Don't die in Illinois residents. Certainly not Chicago. Taxes are crazy high. Our capital gains tax rate is our income tax rate. So your capital gain, you pay 20 federal, you pay- 30, I have family there. So that's why I'm, la I'm laughing. I'm going to have to make a phone call. 1.1% state and plus 3.8% net investment. I've been trying to get them to leave Illinois. So maybe I can convince them. I'll send them this podcast. So maybe. <laughs> it's crazy high. And then I think there's a death tax too. And it's like Cook County has another tax. It's just bananas. So- I was born in Cook County. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy. Now I went back there to show my kids. I was born in 65 yeah. and my kids are in an area that they're very sheltered. So I'm like, let's go to Chicago and see what it looks like in Cook County. So we rented a car, we drove through there and there was a funny car, this unmarked car following me and they stopped me and they said, what are you doing here? I said, I used to live in that house over there. And he said, uh, this is not the same neighborhood when you grew up here. And they're boarded up and it's like drug rings. And there's like signs, you know, the Cook County busted this drug ring. And so my kids got an instant education. Wow. Uh, and then I took them to Costa Rica so they could also see, because they're so sheltered where we live. So anyway, <laughs> so Illinois, note to self, Illinois, don't die. Yeah, okay. It's the crazy taxes. New York too. <laughs> I think that is on the highest level. So on this sort of tax issue. The highest level is this dance between capital gains taxes and death taxes. And my point is, in California, it's 37.1% is the, the maximum capital gains tax rate. The death tax rate is 40%. So for a lot of people, if you have very low cost basis assets and gifting is not on the table, if you have a $20 million estate, because well, for people at 20 million, there's a way you can gift and still keep control and, and all of that. But many of my clients just buy life insurance and they put it mm -hmm. into an irrevocable life insurance trust. Sure. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't believe in life insurance. And I happen to be insurance licensed, but I don't sell insurance. But I think it's oftentimes the best way to pay the taxes, okay? Because you're paying yeah. literally pennies on the dollar. Makes and sense. that tax benefit, that death benefit is income tax-free. And if it's inside of a life insurance trust, it's out of your estate. And so that's a very effective way of balancing the death tax and the income tax. Now, if you say, well, we're never going to sell these assets, then a low basis might not be a bad thing, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's the key. Everybody's so different. And we're kind of talking generalities here. And estate planning is definitely, it's just like financial planning overall. It, it's so unique for each individual person. Yeah, we have a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of agriculture in California, a lot of agriculture in Colorado. Many of our clients have farmland and that's something that they're just not going to sell, right? Yeah. So you, you see a lot of gifting strategies there. With real estate portfolios, a lot of times people want that adjusted cost basis for like commercial and, and multifamily residential rental property. And I would say it's a case by case basis. So, and by the way, if you have an illiquid estate, so if you own a business or you own real estate, those taxes are due nine months after death and they have to be paid in dollars. You have to pay taxes in dollars. You can't pay it in, here's a deed to a property. Because mm. One reason the government prints money is so they can collect taxes, right? So those are due nine months after death. Yeah, that would not be fun. For sure. So I just wrote down some notes of things of that common things that I see and wanted to get your take on that. Sure. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the stock situation. Yeah. I guess the thing that I see the most is people that fall in that middle category that you're talking about, and they're trying to strategize that way. And we don't have crystal balls. Mm -hmm. So I guess it kind of leads more to the question about how do you find the right professional to work with? 
because there's so many different types of attorneys. They'll say that they do estate planning, but maybe that's just, like you said, a really small part of their business and maybe they're not 100% in it. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would look for or checklist? And obviously you want to read your book. Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's in the book. And one of the things is if these are like tells, like playing poker, like a, a tell. So one is that the lawyer online, I guess, or their marketing materials, if a lawyer's, a lot of lawyers aren't online, which is like nuts. They basically say they self-identify as practicing in that area. And it's better to go with someone who self-identifies as I practice in this area and that's it. Okay. But if they do like a divorce in the morning and in the early afternoon, they're doing a DUI. And then in the later in the afternoon, they meet with you to write up your estate plan. That's not the right attorney to go to. Even if you have a small estate, and I, I will really say, even if you have a small estate, not a good idea. Many states have something called a certified specialist designation. California is one of them. I'm a certified specialist in estate planning, trust, and probate law. That's an indicator. So some states don't have that, but if a state has it, I would seek out a certified specialist, or at least if there are other lawyers in the firm, at least one of those lawyers is a certified specialist. The other one is an LLM, which is an, an advanced degree in taxation. So if you're tax sensitive, now I don't have an LLM, but I've got 27 years experience. I looked at doing it and I'm like, well, I kind of already know that stuff, but typically you go right after law school, you get the advanced degree in tax. So if you have tax sensitive, getting an LLM is a good idea. And I will also say this, there are certain professions and industries where practicing or having done it a long time is not helpful. Electrical engineering coming out of school, you're going to know more than someone who's 10 years older than you. I'm just a fact, right? Sorry. Right. If you, I, I'm sorry if you are a mature electrical engineer, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Lawyers, finance, I would say law, finance, to a large respect, diagnostic medicine. I think you get better with age. Okay. I think your skill set improves. Accountancy, you improve because you have more experience. And what is unique about practicing law, you go to law school and it's all theoretical, but pr a practice is the application of knowledge of law to a given situation. And the more experience you have, the better. So I started estate planning when I was 25. And I had the client come in one day. He goes, I have socks older than you. <laughs> but my dad was a lawyer and he kind of nudged me to go to uh, estate planning a little bit. You know, that is so true about knowing the you know, experience counts for something, but energy accounts for something too. Yeah. So my favorite are practices that have young, really smart people working with experienced people that have been around the block. That is exactly our firm, by the way. Perfect. That's the way you build a good business because you're transferring knowledge. Yeah. And then also you need to have that energy, young people energy right. to go at the cusping, uh, to be exploring right. that cutting edge stuff and bringing that information into the firm in order for you to actually incorporate that into your knowledge base. And same thing with doctors. Like when I had my appendix taken out, I kind of wanted a doctor that had a little bit of gray, but right. not too much. Right. <laughs> and I agree with you with the attorney. That's so important. And finding a good attorney, and they're so different. My own estate planning attorney has a master's in tax and et cetera, but I only found that through working with lots of different attorneys. And it's so funny. There's also a personality element to it. Like a client will say, like, I just don't like that person. Mm -hmm. You have to click with them too, because sometimes they're, they're going to ask you, it's like going to the doctor and they say, drop your drawers. The estate planning attorney is going to say, we need to know exactly what's going on. And if you're too guarded, you're not going to get a good result, right? Yeah. We have a saying, well, we have many sayings. Um, <laughs> in our firm behind closed doors, I will pull back the curtain of the Wizard of Oz. We, and I don't take this the wrong way, but we say, who knows, maybe someone will die, which sounds horrible, 
Right. But the door swings both ways on that. The other one we say, the other thing we say is, and I, I say that in jest because it's a big deal because people don't think about kids dying out of order. My brother-in-law just passed away recently at 62. Hmm. And my father-in-law, we're celebrating his 90th birthday this Sunday, and he's lost his wife, two kids, and he's got three kids living. So people die out of order. So that's one thing that is to pay attention to. The other thing hmm. is everything sees the light of day. Now, people do not realize this. Everything sees the light of day. So one job that your executor or trustee has, they must collect all your assets. They must have knowledge of all of your family, even you know, <laughs> you didn't know about, right? right? Everything sees the light of day. And if you mm. want stuff secret, you should tell your lawyer. Okay, so you don't hold anything back from your lawyers. Sometimes it does not happen that often, but sometimes clients will say, well, I just want to ask you a few questions. And I'll say, well, I need to know about you. No, I just want to ask a question. I'm like, I can't answer your question without knowledge, right? I can't do it. Hmm. So everything sees the light of day. Yeah, that works so well in estate planning and financial planning in general. Oh, yeah. Because they're all related. And one small little thing, basically what you're doing implicitly is saying, I know more than that professional. Yeah. And so it's like, why are you coming to me? Why don't you just go Google it? I mean, what? exactly there. You can go to Dr. Google or attorney Google. So I want to talk a little bit about disability and incapacitation. Yeah. That's been a very shocking circumstance for people. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the main things people should think about when they're thinking about disability and you know, how they should incorporate that into their estate plan? Yeah. So I would say there's the slight nuance between disability and incapacity. Disability typically imply it can be a mental or physical limitation. So if you're physically disabled and you're mentally sharp, okay, you're fine. You might need help, but you don't necessarily, you have mental capacity, right? You can do, your, do for yourself. It's when you have diminished capacity or when you're incapacitated. And I'll tell you the diminished ones is the hardest one. And so I, I, it, was, mm. it was the actor who was just diagnosed with aphasia, um, mm. Bruce Willis. Aphasia is where there's a disconnect between the words that are spoken that go into your ear and when it goes to your brain and you stop understanding speech. And that's the slow process. Dementia, my mother-in-law passed away from Alzheimer's and that was a very slow process. And so I think it's important. This is kind of a difficult thing to think about and it's a difficult conversation to have with somebody you care about. But if there is cognitive decline, that person needs help because they're at risk. And that is a very difficult conversation to have and here's the other weird kind of thing about estate planning. When you have a living trust, you appoint a trustee. Every trust has to have a trustee. It's kind of like the captain of the ship, the driver of the boat, right? The driver of the bus. And when that trustee is incapacitated, the successor trustee takes over. But what if that trustee has diminished capacity? What if they still have dignity, but they're slipping and they need help? They can be compliant. That's the word we use, compliant. Or they can resist, right? Resist the help. So- so tell me a little bit about your book and how people can get your book yeah. and places where people can learn more about you. Yeah. So we have a website, cunninghamlegal.com. So if you just type in cunninghamlegal.com, C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M legal.com, you go to our website, you can buy my book from the website. You can buy Savvy Estate Planning from Amazon, but we prefer you go to our website first. And we do have one chapter that is changing in dynamic. It is a chapter on IRAs and 401ks because that is just every time that we're on the second edition of the book 
when I finished my book, they changed the law. And then when I finished my second edition, they changed it again. So we've decided just to put it online and just distribute it that way digitally. The other thing is we have a YouTube page. And so I do a weekly webinar every Thursday and you can register for the webinar on our website, cunninghamlegal.com. We get lots of people on there. We have over, we started this during COVID. We have over a hundred. They're slightly longer format, about an hour. And we just take deep dives into different topics. We cover finance, we cover estate planning, we cover different strategies. We've got one upcoming, All My Friends Are Dead, which is kind of a play on the book. But what happens if your boss dies? What happens if your business partner dies? What happens if an employee dies? So these are all things that people don't really think about, but they happen. I mean, just think about it in your own life, they, they happen. So check out our YouTube page, it's YouTube Cunningham Legal. And we're on there every week and we do so we do it a webinar format live and we do q a on the webinar so live's kind of fun so it's so funny that you mentioned the ira thing that keeps changing <laughs> yeah yeah how to deal with that that's pretty it's Here's definitely a, changed ways of thinking yeah lewis i think the mega taxing the mega ira i can see that getting support frankly yeah there's yep. a lot of people that have built a lot of wealth. They've done that. And you know, the other thing, when people retire, they're getting smashed with taxes on the way out of those. And yeah. Yeah. So we covered this. We, one recent webinar we did, estate planning in your 60s, 70s, and 80s, and different things to think about. And if you're listening to this, and you're going to turn 60 and stop working, and you have a big IRA, the Roth conversion, you should meet with a certified financial planner. That's typically like the client-facing person. And they can run the math and see if it makes sense or not and when to do it because there's a timing of social security. There's a timing of your required minimum distributions. And this requires a much longer time horizon than you might think. I mean, really, it's kind of a lifetime or multi-generational horizon. But I would definitely, yeah. if you're retiring and you're 60 and you got a big IRA, real, I'm not telling you to do a Roth conversion, but I would really look at it because those rules, I think that could change. And what that's doing is that's limiting if you have more than 400,000, I believe it was earned income you're precluded from doing your Roth conversion, right? To convert. Yeah. So we have sophisticated software that does that analysis because distribution strategies are so different yeah. for different people, depending on the mix that they have, their tax bracket, et cetera, et cetera. And we can't use a rule of thumb anymore. It used to be, you could relatively use an order of withdrawal rule of thumb, but now you have to actually calculate. And I will tell you, you could have a small change in your assumption that will change your outcome. So even after you do the calculation, you have to go with the probabilities. Right. So that's why I tell people who are building wealth now to not be so dependent on doing a ton of tax deferred type strategies, things where the government can control them because you lose what's called tax diversification, ability to take from different places. That's why real estate's so important. Other types of assets, diversification are so important. But anyway, this was very, very helpful, Jim. I appreciate you coming on. I learned a bunch of stuff and that's awesome. And I hope that uh, the listeners will uh, take advantage, read the book, Savvy Estate Planning by James Cunningham. All right. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. 
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.